listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, March 3rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Looking at today's weather forecast from KCRG, look for a pretty nice Friday across eastern Iowa. One thing we've been monitoring this week has been the progression of the system, which looks to safely pass to our southeast today into tonight. Plan on plenty of clouds around this morning, then some thinning of the clouds by this afternoon, and especially this evening. Looking at the weekend, a fourth decent weekend in a row appears highly likely as we look ahead. There's a weak system that'll bring some clouds overhead tomorrow, and maybe a sprinkler or two in spots. For all practical purposes, though, this should be a pretty good day with highs in the 40s. On Sunday, a somewhat stronger system develops to our west. You'll notice the wind begin to increase by the afternoon at 20 to 30 miles per hour, which will help push the temperatures to 50 plus degrees from Cedar Rapids and points south. The system also looks to bring us a chance of rain by Sunday evening. Next week, a rain chance is in the offering for Monday. However, the rest of the week looks mainly quiet at this time, though temperatures do tend cooler over time. Plan on highs to fall into the 30s by the back half of next week. Now let's look at the front page, and we have these stories to read today. Family tells of finding infant, Sullivan medals, head to D.C., and let's begin reading the story that appears at the top of the page, Restrictions Take Center Stage, LGBTQ Youth, Schools Dominate, Legislature's Funnel Week Deadline. Caleb McCullough, Tom Barton, and Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau filed this story. Dateline Des Moines. State lawmakers worked through their final first legislative deadline Thursday with restrictions on LGBTQ youths and education regulations taking center stage at the Capitol. After this week's legislative funnel, only bills that have passed out of at least one committee can be considered for the rest of the session. But there are exceptions. Budget and tax bills are not subject to the funnel, and leaders have ways to revive legislation if they want to bring it back. House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican from New Hartford, said the House has hit on key priorities during the session so far, advancing legislation dealing with parental oversight of education, private school education savings accounts, and other issues Republicans made central to their campaigns. Quote, we've been focusing on what we feel are the priorities that we campaigned on last election, and we were very successful, Grassley said. Quote, a lot of these issues were part of those topics of conversation, unquote. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights, told reporters on Thursday the work of Republican majority has been, quote, nothing but politics, for the first two months of the session. She said the flurry of bills that deal with LGBTQ students, instruction, and transgender youth do not deal with the interests of Iowans. Quote, if you were to look at the legislature's work, you would think people's biggest problem facing our state is trans kids and gay marriage, Conference said. Quote, instead, the problems facing our state are rising cancer rates our homeless kids, our schools that need additional help, 
our mental health crisis that I've heard about over and over on the doors. We've done nothing to address these issues, unquote. The Senate Health and Human Services Committee passed Senate Study Bill 1197, a bill that would ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors. Thursday, a move that contradicts the guidance of doctors in the state and major medical associations. A House committee was likely to advance the bill later Thursday. It's one of several bills dealing with LGBTQ students and youths, which Democrats and LGBTQ rights advocates have called harmful and discriminatory. In the Senate on Wednesday, lawmakers advanced a bill that would ban teaching on gender identity and sexual activity through fifth grade, requires schools to notify parents if a student expresses a different gender identity, and requires schools to get parental permission before referring to a child by a different name or set of pronouns. All systems the House Committee has advanced as separate bills. Quote, Parents should have the ultimate responsibility and right to decide what is in the best interest of their children, including when it comes to their education, said Molly Severin, legislative liaison and lobbyist for Governor Kim Reynolds. Another bill would effectively ban transgender students from using the bathroom or locker room that aligns with their gender identity, requiring school facilities to be separated by biological sex. Thousands of Iowa high school students Wednesday left school in planned walkouts across the state to protest LGBTQ-related bills advanced by Republicans. Many in Des Moines marched to the Iowa Capitol chanting, quote, We say gay and trans rights are human rights. Quote, Being trans has not been easy for me. Jax Phillips, a 14-year-old transgender student from Ankeny, told lawmakers Thursday during a subcommittee hearing on one of the many bills dealing with LGBTQ students. Quote, I have been bullied for it. I've been told that I am delusional or that I just want attention. People in my school have shouted slurs at me, unquote. Phillips said, quote, it's not something that I want to go through. This is something that I have to do in order to express myself, unquote. Phillips told lawmakers, quote, children should not have to live their lives in fear for their safety and lives because of how they identify. Forcing trusted adults to out kids who have turned to them where they would be safe reinforces to those children that they should have to fear who they surround themselves with, Phillips said. I should not have to be here arguing before lawmakers that transgender youths should have the same rights as their peers, to be whoever we can, unquote. Republicans argued the bills are responding to concerns parents and other constituents have brought. Quote, we laid out in session very early on some of these bills being part of our priority list, Grassley said. So I wouldn't say this is a flurry of things just coming along right now because we're at funnel. And keep in mind, a lot of the bills we're working on were taking concerns from Iowans across the state, unquote. But Democrats said the anti-LGBTQ legislation Republicans are advancing is right out of a national right-wing playbook, not something a majority of Iowans want. Senate Minority Whip Sarah Trone Garriott, a Democrat from West Des Moines, said she has heard from constituents 
that moved to Iowa because they saw it as a welcoming place. Quote, these folks are really concerned about what the future is going to be like here, and if there's a future for them in Iowa, she said, and we need to spend the rest of this legislative session working on things that Iowans are asking for, unquote. Senate Democrats criticized Reynolds and Republicans for championing parental rights while also pushing a ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender minors, including the use of puberty blockers, hormones, and surgery for transgender patients. Such bans, they argue, violate the fundamental rights of parents to seek medical care for their children. And courts in other states have struck down such measures, finding that they prohibit medical treatment consistent with accepted standards of care. Quote, this is a sudden switch-up from Governor Reynolds and some statehouse Republicans beating the drum of trusting parents' parental rights and parental choice. Senator Janet Peterson, a Democrat from Des Moines, said during Thursday in voting against the Senate bill in committee, quote, politicians do not belong in the exam room with Iowans. Banning medical care for Iowans puts lives at risk. Care should be free from discrimination and political interference, unquote. Peterson thanked Iowans, quote, who came forward to testify against one of the most extreme political attacks on transgender Iowans and Iowa physicians, unquote. These mean-spirited bills that are harmful to the health and well-being of their friends and classmates, she said, this bill bans life-saving, medically necessary, gender-affirming care, unquote. The bill would contradict the guidance of several major medical groups who have said gender-affirming care correlates with a reduction in mental health problems and suicide attempts. Iowa physicians testified last week that gender-affirming care to minors is a methodical, deeply personalized process that involves multiple doctors and parent consent. Critics note the measures would violate the Iowa Civil Rights Act and be at odds with federal protections against discrimination in education. Senate Republicans on Thursday amended the bill to state enforcement and compliance with its provisions shall not constitute a violation of the Iowa Civil Rights Act. A wave of similar legislation in Republican-led states has been considered this year, and Utah and Florida are among the states that have enacted such bans. Senator Jeff Edler, Republican from State Center, raised concerns about providing irreversible care to minors who they said are not old enough to make informed decisions about experimental treatments that could leave them permanently sterile or physically marred for life, unquote. Adler is chair of the Senate Health and Human Services Committee, which advanced the bill Thursday on a party-line vote with Democrats opposed. Quote, Iowa has a duty to protect its citizens, especially our children, Edler said. These experimental procedures push vulnerable children down a one-way path that leads to permanent sterility and a lifetime of medical intervention. This is a public health matter that should be regulated as such under Iowa law, unquote. Under the topic of traffic cameras, bills dealing with traffic cameras moved out of the House Public Safety Committee as lawmakers look to regulate the systems that some cities use as a significant revenue driver. House File 161 would require cities and counties 
to get permission from the State Department of Transportation to set up traffic cameras on interstates, highways, and other roads maintained by the state. Another bill, House File 173, allows the state to place cameras on primary roads, but limits cities to city roads and counties to county roads. Democrats opposed the bills, saying they would impose burdensome regulations and take away an important revenue stream that cities use to fund public safety. Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, said the camera on the S-curve of Interstate 380 saves lives, and House File 173 would defund the Cedar Rapids Police Department, unquote. Committee Chair Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone, said the bills are intended to set up a framework around traffic camera regulation, and they could see changes before going to the floor. Quote, we could merge bills. There are a number of different avenues to go in, he said. Quote, right now, we don't have a really good idea of which direction we want to go, unquote. Jobs for teens. State Republicans advanced legislation that would create more opportunities for Iowa 14- to 17-year-olds to work certain jobs with parental permission, a proposal that Democrats warned would put these teenagers in harm's way. Examples among the provisions in the proposal include 16- and 17-year-olds in Iowa could work in bars and sell or serve drinks with parental permission. 15-year-olds could perform light assembly work, provided it is not on a machine or in an area with machines, and 14-year-olds could work in meat lockers. Senator Adrian Dickey, Republican in Packwood, said the legislation creates more opportunities for teenagers who want to pick up part-time work and pushed back at assertions that the proposal will put Iowa teenagers in danger on the job. But Senator Bill Dotzler, a Democrat from Waterloo, argued the legislation would in fact put Iowa teenagers in places of work that he said are dangerous for teenagers. Republicans advanced the Senate File 167 out of the Senate's Workforce Committee, keeping it eligible for further consideration this session and making it eligible for debate by the full Senate. House Republicans are also advancing similar legislation. Our next story is titled, Sullivan Medals to be Displayed in D.C. Exhibit, story filed by Pat Kinley for The Courier. And it opens with the photograph of Nicholas Erickson, and he's the artifacts registrar at the Waterloo Grout Museum District. He's holding one of the Purple Heart medals presented posthumously to Albert and Joseph Sullivan. Nicholas is wearing a plaid shirt and white gloves, cradling one of the Purple Heart medals, and he's also wearing a pocket protector full of pens. Dateline Waterloo Medals honoring Waterloo's five Sullivan brothers killed during World War II will be on display again in Washington, D.C. this year at the very locations their parents were presented with them nearly 80 years ago. Another picture presented here by the Courier was taken on January 25, 1944, and it shows U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Clark H. Woodward as he presents five Purple Heart medals posthumously to Thomas and Aletta Sullivan, the Sullivan brothers' parents, on behalf of the Department of the Navy. 
Purple Heart medals presented to two of the brothers will be on display at historic Anderson House as part of its Affairs of State exhibit, marking 118 years of diplomacy, special events, and entertaining at the location. It is on the National Register of Historic Places and the site of many important ceremonies and diplomatic events. It houses the American Revolution Institute, a group tracing its origins back to George Washington. Kelly Sullivan, granddaughter and grandniece of the five brothers, will deliver the medals to Anderson House officials this weekend. She will be accompanied by Nicholas Erickson, Artifacts Registrar at Waterloo's Grout Museum District, which includes the Sullivan Brothers Iowa Veterans Museum. Erickson helped Kelly Sullivan negotiate details of a loan agreement for the medals. Quote, he was the one that encouraged me to do this, Sullivan said of Erickson. He said, if they were my grandfather's medals, I would do it, unquote. Anderson House officials approached Sullivan months ago, and Erickson encouraged her to follow through. Sullivan also thought the medals should be hand-delivered. For the exhibit, Sullivan also will loan for the display her Navy mother's ceremonial sash that was worn by her great-grandmother, the brother's mother, Aletta Sullivan. Grout Museum staff raised money to purchase the sash from a collector and presented it to Sullivan in November over Veterans Day and the 80th anniversary of the brother's deaths following the naval battle of Guadalcanal. On January 25, 1944, U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Clark H. Woodward presented five Purple Heart medals posthumously to Thomas and Aletta Sullivan, the brothers' parents, on behalf of the Department of the Navy. He praised the parents' fortitude for keeping their chins up. Keep your chins up and we'll keep them flying, was a closing line one of the brothers, Joseph Red Sullivan, frequently used in letters he wrote to home. Sullivan said until she spoke with Anderson House officials, quote, I didn't really realize my grandparents had been there on numerous occasions, and that this is the location where they received the Purple Hearts for the five boys. Just listening to all that, it just made sense, unquote. Sullivan said when a dear friend who is in the Naval Reserve Senior Chief Petty Officer recently lost some items of personal and potentially historic significance in a fire, it underscored the urgency to preserve and share her family's items. Quote, the things we have, which is not a ton, belong in a museum, Sullivan said. When the Anderson House exhibit concludes at the year's end, she intends for those items to be brought back to the Sullivan Museum in Waterloo. Quote, that's what I want, and that's what the Sullivan family wants, is we want these things to be on display for everyone to see them for years to come. This is something big, and this is something that needs to be shared with the public. The Purple Heart is the oldest decoration in the U.S. military. It is awarded to military service members killed or wounded in combat. It was first awarded by General George Washington during the American Revolution. Kelly Sullivan and her family have retained the Purple Heart medals awarded to her grandfather, Albert Sullivan, the youngest of the brothers, and the only one who married and that of Joseph Red Sullivan. The others were lost over the years. The Affairs of State exhibit 
highlighting the many events held at Anderson House, runs through the end of this year. According to its website, Anderson House is a 1905 Beaux Arts Museum built as the winter home of Lars Anderson, an American diplomat, and his wife Isabel. When Lars Anderson died in 1937, his widow donated the house to the Society of the Cincinnati, an organization founded in 1783 by Washington and other Continental Army officers dedicated to preserving the memory of the American Revolution. George, Francis, Joseph, Madison, and Albert Sullivan of Waterloo died after their ship, the USS Juno, was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and sunk on November 13, 1942. The Juno and other battle-damaged American ships were returning from the naval battle of Guadalcanal, in which they turned back a Japanese task force headed for the island. All but 14 of the Juno's crew of nearly 700 were lost, including all five Sullivans. It is considered the greatest combat-related loss of life by one family at one time in the U.S. military history. And now for something completely different. Family recounts finding infant following baby on board car theft. Story filed by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo. If it weren't for a cigarette break, a baby taken during a Sunday car theft may not have survived the Iowa winter night, according to the people who found her. Quote, she saved my baby's life, said a retired farm wife whose adult daughter discovered the five-month-old child in a car seat that had been placed next to a trash bin at the corner of their Wagner Road home. Police said the baby had been in the back seat of a Lincoln MKX, left unlocked and running outside the Dollar General on West 5th Street Sunday night. Someone stole the vehicle and left the tiny passenger outside the farmhouse, some five miles out of town. Temperatures that night were in the low 40s. Residents at the farmhouse, who asked not to be identified, said no one knocked on the door or rang their doorbell. The TV was on and the sewing machine was running as the daughter sewed a pair of pants. They didn't even know a vehicle had pulled into the driveway and then drove off. Quote, we didn't hear nothing. The house was so solid. You cannot hear anything outside, the wife said. Quote, this house has full six-inch walls and they are insulated, the husband added. You couldn't see it from here if you looked out the window. Only if you opened the door, the wife continued. Their adult daughter smokes but she isn't allowed to smoke in the house. So after mending the pants around 7.45 p.m., about an hour after the Lincoln and child had disappeared, she stepped out the back door for a cigarette break, walking down the steps and past a stack of boxes that housed a family of farm cats. There she noted the car seat covered with a pink blanket. Quote, she looked inside and the little girl looked up at her and just smiled and cooed, the wife said. They called 911 and brought the child inside. She was just giggling and smiling, and just as happy as she could be. Her eyes were sparkling, the wife said. Police came, and the baby was reunited with the mother. Quote, At least the person brought it here, and the baby was safe, and mom and dad got her. Mom and dad's prayers are answered now, the wife said. Meanwhile, police used surveillance video to identify Roy Alfred Alverson, 
as the person who drove off with the vehicle and child, according to court records. Officers found Halverson when they were called to a disturbance at the hotel president, 500 Sycamore Street, around 1.45 p.m. on Wednesday. He was holding a bucket of cat litter, records state, and when the police detained him, they found a glass pipe containing meth in his pocket. Halverson was arrested for second-degree theft, neglect of a dependent person, and possession of methamphetamine. Bond was set at $100,000. Next, we have Alex Murdaugh, convicted of murder in shootings of wife and son, story filed by the Associated Press. Dateline, Walter Burrow, South Carolina. Disgraced South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdaugh was convicted of murder Thursday in the shooting deaths of his wife and son in a case that chronicled the unraveling of a powerful Southern family with tales of privilege, greed, and addiction. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before finding Murdaugh guilty of two counts of murder at the end of a six-week trial. Murdaugh, 54, faces 30 years to life in prison without parole when he is sentenced, which in South Carolina is typically right after the verdict, but can be delayed if a judge chooses. When closing arguments wrapped up, the judge turned Murdaugh's fate over to the jurors after giving them his final instructions, and they headed to their jury room to begin the deliberations. Attorney Jim Graffin gave the defense's closing, emphasizing Murdaugh's main point, that investigators focused solely on him and conducted the investigation so poorly that any evidence pointing to someone else, like fingerprints or possible DNA, on Maggie or Paul Murdaugh's clothing was never gathered. Quote, how could he have butchered Maggie and Paul without leaving a trace of evidence within a matter of minutes, Griffin said. Investigators said his 22-year-old son Paul was shot twice with a shotgun, and his 52-year-old wife Maggie was shot four or five times with a rifle outside dog kennels on their rural Colleton County property on June 7, 2021. Prosecutors got the final word with a rebuttal argument after Griffin spoke. Quote, you can't answer every question, and the law doesn't require it, Prosecutor John Medors said. Investigators think Murdaugh had no more than about 17 minutes from the time his wife and son stopped using their cell phones to when he left the property to visit his ailing mother. Experts from both sides agreed there had to be a massive amount of blood, tissue, and other material from the killings, but prosecution did not present any evidence of blood spatter on clothes. The weapons in the case also have not been found. Quote, he had 17 minutes. He would have to be a magician to take all that evidence disappear, Griffin said. No one tried to look for DNA on the clothes of the victims, which a killer could have left. No one tried to see if fingerprints or shoe prints could be lifted from the blood around Paul Murdaugh and matched to a possible killer, Griffin said. Prosecutors think Alex Murdaugh killed his wife and son because he feared his years of stealing millions of dollars from his law firm and clients would be exposed and his lofty standing in the community toppled. They said he hoped their deaths would make him a sympathetic figure and draw attention away from the missing money.
a key piece of evidence for prosecutors is a video that includes the voices of Murdahl and his wife and son at the kennels just minutes before investigators said they were killed. The video wasn't discovered for a year because agents couldn't initially hack into his son's iPhone. For 20 months, Alex Murdahl told everyone that he wasn't at the kennels, but while testifying in his own defense, he admitted he was there. Quote, he lied because that's what addicts do. He lied because he has a closet full of skeletons, Griffin said. Prosecutors said all Murdoch did was lie to the people he was stealing from, to the people about a key fact in their investigation, to his family about his drug use, and even about the order in which he checked his wife and son for signs of life, switching who he checked first in different police interviews. Griffin said that showed how badly the state wanted to convict Murdoch at all costs, referring to prosecutors' closing argument where they said the evidence showed Maggie Murdoch died while running to see her son. Quote, Alex was running to his baby. You can imagine what she saw, Griffin said. And is it evidence of guilt that he doesn't remember what the sequencing was at that moment? Griffin said his time as a prosecutor left him pained to say the state law enforcement division either fabricated or lied about the evidence. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, March 3rd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Waterloo. Millie Harriet Saffold, 101, passed away peacefully on February 26th at Allen Hospital in Waterloo, Iowa, with her family members surrounding her. Mrs. Saffold was born on August 7, 1921, in Lexington, Mississippi, to Penny Mims and Bertha Russell. She attended All Saints Industrial School. She became engaged to Sylvester Saffold, whom she'd met in Lexington. They were married at Shilliam Church of God in Christ in Waterloo in 1947. She and Sylvester were later divorced. They had one daughter, Barbara Ruth Culpepper Scheel. Mrs. Saffold held a variety of positions in Waterloo, including food preparer at the Colony Club and as a domestic worker for multiple families. In her spare time, she loved gardening and was known for beautifying her yard with plentiful and colorful flowers. She also was notoriously generous with the fruits and vegetables sown from her garden, which she worked until her late 90s. Mrs. Saffold's wake will be Friday, March 3rd, at Shilliam, G-O-G-I-C, 307 Shilliam Avenue, from 5 to 7 p.m. Funeral service will take place Saturday, March 4th, at 2 o'clock at Antioch Baptist Church, 426 Sumner Street. There will be no repast. The family will receive friends at 830 Prairie Meadow Court. Sanders Funeral Service is assisting the family. Mrs. Saffold's family is ever grateful to each member of Waterloo's community who watched out for her of particularly 
hot or cold days, gave her a little assistance when she needed it, took time to respond to her questions, and encouraged her. This made it easier and possible for her to live on her own. The family also is exceptionally grateful to the staff of Unity Point Hospice, Allen, whose knowledgeable and gentle care for Mrs. Saffold ensured her peaceful and dignified transition. Next, in Waverly, Robert C. Gremmels of Waverly, 94 years old, died at home February 28th of complications from a fall. Funeral service will be Monday, March 6th, 1.30 p.m. at Wartburg Chapel. Visitation will be Sunday, March 5th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly. Bob was born on January 4, 1929, to C. Harold and Valeska Bredow Gremmels. On December 27, 1952, he married Marion Chaplin. Two children were born to Bob and Marion, Gillian in 1958, and Jonathan in 1960. They made their home in Columbus, where Bob received his master's degree in journalism from the Ohio State University in 1954 and his divinity degree from the Seminary of Capital University in 1957. Bob was called to work in church publications and was ordained in 1959. In June of 1960, Bob and his family moved to Waverly, where Bob began a 34-year career serving his alma mater, Wartburg College, in various capacities. Wartburg College was founded by his great-great-grandfather, the Reverend George Grossman. Bob was known for his love of music, food, red wine, and the arts. A limerick writing contest started by Scott Coalty launched Bob into the world of limericks. He used his creative mind and wordsmith skills to both skewer and salute. Writing limericks became a chief retirement hobby. After the untimely death of his first wife in 1987, Bob started a new chapter in 1989 with his marriage to Beth Olson. Beth was a student at Wartburg Seminary, and she is now an ordained Lutheran pastor. Bob and Beth are parents to Ariana. A full obituary is available on the Kaiser Corson website. Next, we have the listing of the death notices provided by the courier. Stanley E. Ackerman, 63, of Cedar Falls, died Wednesday, March 1st, at Unity Point Allen Memorial Hospital in Waterloo. Arrangements for Stanley are with Locke Funeral Home. Teresa M. Tutti Brustkern, 90, died Tuesday, February 28th, at home. Arrangements for Teresa are with Haggerty Wychuff Grarup Funeral Service on South Street. Betty Jean Derrifield, 78, of Waterloo, died Tuesday, February 28th, at Allen Memorial Hospital in Waterloo. Arrangements for Betty are being made with the Haggerty Wychuff Grarup Funeral Service. And lastly, Derek William Taylor, 34, of Waterloo, died Sunday, February 26th, in Waterloo. Arrangements for Derek are also with Haggerty Wychoff Grarup Funeral Service. And now, let's turn to the opinion section. This first opinion piece comes to us from the Des Moines Register, written by Steve Westerberg. Critics use falsehoods 
and bid to reduce trust in public schools. I encourage everyone to pay attention to what is going on at the Iowa Capitol concerning education. Though the private school voucher bill has received the most attention, there are other bills that could further damage public education if they pass into law. Nationwide, there's a well-orchestrated effort to undermine confidence in public schools. The strategy involves widespread sharing of false narratives to sow doubt about the practices taking place in public schools. Here are a few examples of how this strategy is being implemented. First, spreading widely rumors that there are public school students identifying as cats and that those students are being accommodated by schools providing kitty litter in the bathrooms. This ridiculous rumor has no basis in fact, yet continues to circulate across the country, including in Iowa, also promoting the belief that schools are teaching critical race theory. Critical race theory is the product of research conducted by college professors years ago that looked at how past discriminatory practices, such as refusing home loans to members of minority groups, and voter restrictions had a long-term impact on the social, economic, and health of minorities. CRT is not being taught in public K-12 schools. The vast majority of Americans had never heard of CRT until it became a talking point for those who sought to further split the American electorate on the topic of public education. Also, denigrating public schools and their teachers by accusing them of having a, quote, sinister agenda to indoctrinate students in harmful and un-American ideals. This phrase was used by former president of the Iowa Senate. Accusations against teachers and librarians that suggest they are purveyors of pornography and should be charged with a crime. And, most recently, Representative Stephen Holt of Denison is floor-managing a bill House File 132, that would require social studies teachers to have a, quote, comparative discussion of political ideologies. Holt claims he and other lawmakers have heard, quote, a lot of high school and college students singing the praises of socialism, unquote. He goes on to say, quote, I believe there are some in our educational establishment that seem to be embracing some of these things today, unquote. These quotes were in the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Never mind that there isn't a government teacher in the state who doesn't already instruct on the economic systems, capitalism, socialism, communism, and that such instruction is already part of the state-approved social studies standard, SS-WH 9-12.15. Compare and contrast the various economic and labor systems within and across societies. Holt's use of hyperbole to imply schools are promoting un-American ideals is dangerous. Instead of trying to instill fear and anger for political gain, effective politicians pass meaningful legislation to address known problems, such as lowering student debt, promoting adequate and affordable child care, ending poverty, cleaning up polluted water, etc. If Holt and his colleagues really believe in this latest red scare coming from a lot of students, they would do well to learn why these students are expressing their concerns about capitalism. 
Could it be that these young people see their parents working three jobs to make ends meet? Well, the wealthy seem to control all the levers of the economy. Could it be because their parents lost their jobs during the pandemic and their families suffered financial hardships while the gap between rich and poor continued to grow? Maybe if our elected officials could learn to listen to some who don't blindly follow the party line, the result would be some meaningful legislation that offers help to Iowa and many Iowans, while at the same time promotes understanding that capitalism is the greatest economic system in the world. Why would some politicians and media sources want to weaken the public's confidence in public education? Here's my take on it. There are stark philosophical differences between those attempting to undermine public education and most public educators. Since educators aren't a large component of the current ruling party's voting base, the votes of educators don't really matter. It makes it far easier for those politicians to assert their political and social agenda on public schools, while public confidence in schools is reduced. Public education is a cornerstone of our democracy. Instead of tearing it down, we need to be supporting and uplifting this work and the people doing it. I encourage citizens to find out the facts on what and how students are being taught in your schools through conversations with building administrators and classroom teachers, and by looking at the district's website rather than relying on social media posts and partisan news outlets and politicians. We need to share the facts and call out those who spread falsehoods. It's deeply insulting to teachers who are pouring their hearts into their students to know some are purposely tearing them and their profession down. Our author, Steve Westerberg, is from Forest City, and he retired in 2020 after 40 years as a public school teacher, principal, and superintendent. Next, we have an editorial written by Paul Krugman of the New York Times titled, How Not to Panic About Social Security. Quote, the days of our years are threescore and ten, says Psalm 90 in the King James Bible. So right now, I'm about to keel over. Okay, actually, I'm feeling fine. And because both high education and high income are strongly correlated with life expectancy, more on that in a minute, I could easily be looking at two decades or more ahead. Although obviously, nothing is guaranteed. But one thing will change. Since there's no longer any payoff to a delay, I'm about to start receiving Social Security payments, which, along with the fact that Social Security and Medicare are in the news, makes this seem like a good occasion to write about some common misconceptions about the program, mostly on the right, but to some extent also on the left. The thing about Social Security is that from the beginning, it was designed to encourage misconceptions. It looks, on casual inspection, like a giant version of a private pension plan. You pay into such a plan during your working years, contributing to a pension fund, and when you retire, you receive payments from that fund in proportion to the amount you put in. That, by the way, is also the reason the payroll tax only applies up to a maximum income, currently $160,200. There's a limit to how much you can contribute to a tax-advantaged pension plan, 
So there's a seemingly analogous limit on contributions to Social Security. I haven't studied the detailed history of the program's origins, but I'm pretty sure that it was set up to look like an ordinary pension fund because it made it politically easier to sell. But in reality, Social Security has never been run like a private pension plan. For one thing, for the first half-century of the program's existence, it had almost no assets. In 1985, the trust fund was only large enough to pay around two months' worth of benefits, so it has always operated mainly on a pay-as-you-go basis, with today's payroll taxes paying for today's retiree benefits, not tomorrow's. I often get mail from people claiming that this makes Social Security a Ponzi scheme, but it isn't. It's just a government program supported by a dedicated tax, which is fairly common. For example, that's how we pay for roads and bridges, which are funded by gas taxes. The other way Social Security is unlike a private pension is that what you get out isn't at all proportional to what you put in. Workers with low earnings get a much higher share of those earnings replaced than higher wage workers. In the past, this made the program strongly redistributive, a much better deal for workers with low pay than for workers with high pay. By the late 1970s, it was clear, however, that Social Security was facing financial trouble down the road. The baby boom ended in 1964, so the working-age population, which grew rapidly as long as boomers were still entering the labor market, would grow more slowly in the decades ahead. This meant that the program's tax base would grow more slowly than the number of beneficiaries, especially once the boomers began retiring. So in 1981, a bipartisan commission set out to secure Social Security's future. It tried to do so with two measures. First, it increased the payroll tax rate. The idea was to make Social Security a bit more like a real pension fund by taking in more than it was spending, building up a serious trust fund that could help defray costs once the baby boomers hit the system. It also set in motion a gradual rise in the age of eligibility for full benefits, which started at 65 and will reach 67 for those born after 1960. All of this was supposed to secure the system's finances until 2060. It did, in fact, buy the system a number of decades, but the Social Security Administration currently expects the trust fund to be exhausted by 2035. The main reason for the shortfall, as I understand it, is that taxable wages have grown more slowly than expected, which in turn is largely the result of rising inequality. A growing share of overall income has gone to people with really high earnings, and much of that income isn't subject to the payroll tax with its limit. So what happens once the trust fund is exhausted? The system doesn't collapse, but payroll tax receipts are expected to be only about 80% of promised benefits. So if nothing's done, benefits will suddenly have to be slashed by 20%. That, however, almost certainly won't be allowed to happen. Those programs are both immensely popular and deeply relied upon, after all. One obvious course of action would be to provide the system with more money. I get a lot of mail from people saying that 
we should simply eliminate the upper limit on the payroll tax. That would certainly raise a lot of money. But bear in mind that there is no fundamental reason Social Security has to be financed with payroll taxes. We only do it that way because back in 1935, FDR's advisors thought it would be a good idea to dress Social Security up to look like a private pension fund. And Social Security isn't the only program that's going to need more money unless we cut expenses. So we should be trying to figure out the best way to raise a few more percentage points of GDP in taxes. To achieve that, raising the payroll cap may not be the best way to go. The other idea I hear a lot is that we should raise the retirement age, which has already been increased from 65 to 67. After all, people are living longer so they can work longer, right? Well, some people are living longer. But one key point in thinking about Social Security is that the number of years you can expect to spend collecting benefit has become increasingly linked to the income you earned earlier in your life. There's a chart everyone discussing retirement ages should know about, although many don't. It shows how life expectancy at age 65 has changed for Americans with different levels of income. Life expectancy has indeed risen a lot for the affluent, but for the less well-paid members of the working class, it has hardly risen at all. What this means is that calling for an increase in the retirement age is, in effect, saying that janitors can't be allowed to retire because lawyers are living longer. Not a very nice position to take. Growing disparities in life expectancy also mean, by the way, that Social Security isn't as redistributive as it used to be. Low earners get more of their income replaced than high earners, but this is increasingly offset by the fact that they have fewer years to collect benefits. In any case, I hope we don't raise the retirement age further. As I wrote last week, what we need is medical cost control plus moderate tax hikes. And meanwhile, don't worry too much about your future benefits. Social Security isn't a Ponzi scheme. It isn't going bankrupt, and it will probably continue much as it has. And now, let's return to local news from The Courier. Resident with BB gun detains burglar who broke into Waterloo home. This filed by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. A resident armed with a BB gun detained an intruder who broke into his home early Thursday. Police arrested Joshua Raymond Wilson, 40, of 2205 Byron Avenue for second-degree burglary and possession of marijuana, hydrocodone, and methadone. Bond was set at $13,000. Authorities allege Wilson entered a home in the 3200 block of Santa Maria Drive through an unlocked door around 12.30 a.m. Thursday while other people were inside. When officers arrived, they found the resident holding Wilson at BB gun point in the garage. When police handcuffed him, they found a bag of marijuana and a container with prescription pills, according to court records. He told officers he had planned to steal stuff, according to court records. Wilson has a prior burglary conviction for a November 2016 incident where he took cash and a pack of Marlboro light cigarettes from a home on Prospect Boulevard. Next, man arrested after allegedly starting small fire in Waterloo home. 
Dateline Waterloo. A man was arrested Wednesday night after allegedly starting a small fire in his family's basement. Jeffrey Allen Bennett, 23, of Waterloo, was charged with reckless use of fire, a misdemeanor. First responders were alerted at 6.45 p.m. about the fire at a home in the 900 block of West 5th Street near the West Side convenience store. The flames were put out before they arrived on the scene. No one was injured during the incident, nor was any damage caused to the home. Bennett told police he started the fire in the basement to cook ramen noodles. Others in the house said they smelled smoke and went into the basement and found flames three feet high. They poured water on the fire. Next, man who was pulled from Cedar River has died. Story filed by Jeff Reinitz and begins with a photograph showing Waterloo firefighters loading up equipment after a man was pulled from the Cedar River downstream from the 11th Street Bridge on Wednesday. Dateline Waterloo. A man who was pulled from the turbulent Cedar River near downtown Wednesday afternoon has died. Authorities identified the deceased as a 67-year-old Waterloo man who had been suffering from ongoing health issues. A passing motorist saw the man as he entered the river as she was driving over the Mullen Avenue Bridge at about 12.30 p.m. He went over the dam near 4th Street Bridge and also went under log debris floating in the river. A firefighter entered the river and pulled him ashore just past the 11th Street Bridge, and rescue workers began performing CPR. He was taken to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead. Let's read the Metro Briefs column next. Legion Post Sets Fry, Dateline Waterloo, the American Legion Becker Chapman Post 138 at 728 Commercial Street will hold its weekly fish and roasted chicken fry from 4.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Friday night and each Friday through April 7th. The cost is $15 for all-you-can-eat fish and chicken buffet. Children 7 and under are $7.00 and kids under two are free. Veterans and their spouses can enjoy a $2 discount with proper ID. Buffet includes baked or deep-fried fish, roasted chicken, baked or roasted potatoes, baked beans, coleslaw, cottage cheese, pea salad, dessert, and dinner rolls. The public is welcome. Civil War Group meets Thursday, Dateline Cedar Falls. The Cedar Valley Civil War Roundtable will meet at 7 p.m. Thursday, March 16th. As the February meeting was canceled, Charles Lott will present his planned program on Rock Island Prison. Lott will discuss the organization of the prison camp for captured Confederate soldiers and the associated cemetery. He has researched an ancestor who was a prisoner and survived. The meeting will be at the Community Foundation of Northeast Iowa, 317 Green Hill Circle in Cedar Falls. The entrance is on the upper level. For further information, email cvcrt9 at yahoo.com. Breakfast comes to Waverly Vets Post. Dateline Waverly, the Waverly Area Veterans Post, will hold its monthly breakfast on March 11th from 7.30 to 10 o'clock a.m. The event is free but attendees may contribute to the donations jar to help cover the cost. The post is located 
at 1300 4th Street Northwest. Local groups seek volunteers. Dateline Cedar Falls, the volunteer center of the Cedar Valley, has announced the following needs of local organizations. The Salvation Army of Waterloo Cedar Falls is looking for volunteers to help out as a perishable goods food pantry volunteer. Volunteers will help box and distribute fresh produce to people on their giveaway days. The 2023 Iowa Shrine Bowl is looking for people who would be willing to help in the concession stands at the Unidome during the event in July. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, March 3rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. We want to remind you that you can access a recording of today's reading of this newspaper and the others around the state that we read on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music